Mark chapter 6, starting at verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. When evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. He saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. uh, My wife, Stephanie, is a real estate agent in addition to a regular job that she does. Um, And when she has an open house or she's showing a client a house, uh, I'll often go with her to look at the house. So I've seen quite a few houses either looking for myself or looking for somebody else. And uh, there's some things that kind of stick out to you when you look at houses. Uh, I remember one particular house a few years ago. Uh, we were, me and Stephanie were actually looking for a house for ourselves. We passed by this house, didn't really know anything about it, and we saw that there was an open house. Um, so we decided we'll take a look at it, and we walked into the doors of the house, and it was pretty evident pretty quickly that this house was way, way out of our price range, but it was fun to look around nevertheless. What stuck out to me about this particular house was the intentionality of how the architect had designed every last detail of this house. The owner of the house had some construction background, and she went around and kind of showed us the thinking behind each aspect of the house, down to like where the outlets were placed, where the doors were placed, and she'd say, you know, you can put this here, you can put a TV here, this door leads out to the patio, this door leads here, everything had a very specific intention. That's kind of the rarity of the houses that I've looked at. Uh, A lot of times I'll go into houses and look at them, and I'll look at certain aspects of the house, and I'll just be kind of scratching my head like, what exactly were they thinking when they did this? For example, uh, a while back I went and looked at this house, and you walk into the side door, and if you went to the right, it would be the kitchen. If you went to the left, it was a toilet without a door. There was a saloon-style door, so there was some door, but you could just look over the top, look under, and you could just run in and run out at your convenience whenever you needed to go in, unencumbered by having to open or close a door. And you just think, what exactly were they thinking when they did that? And then when we actually purchased a house, I kind of found some similar things at my own house where I just was wondering, like, what exactly were they, th- were they thinking? Specifically involving the outside. When we purchased the house, it was uh, wintertime. There was snow on the ground. We couldn't really see the outside very well. But then when spring came out, I go outside, and there's a shed there. And then I see next to the shed, kind of in the middle of the driveway or the yard, there's a lawnmower just sitting out in the middle of the yard. And then as I look around, I find all these various stones in the yard, all different size, shapes, colors, some of them so big that I can't even lift them, some of them, you know, just little tiny ones stuck in the ground. And then there's tree stumps all over the yard, probably uh, six to seven tree stumps where the trees had grown up, they just kind of cut off the top. And I'm just looking at these yards like, why all these stones? 
Why all these tree stumps? Why, why is the lawnmower in the middle of the yard? There's a shed right there. And it's been out all winter. You know, there's things that, you know, you go through and you just kind of wonder, why do they do that? So you have those two experiences where there's kind of an intentionality and then where you're kind of questioning. I think that's kind of how we sometimes go through trials. Sometimes we go through kind of trials or storms in life and we can see a kind of intentionality in it. You know, maybe it's difficult in the moment, but then we can see how God works through it. We can see how God brings good out of something difficult. But then there's other times in our lives where we go through a storm and we're kind of left questioning and we're kind of scratching our heads thinking, what exactly is God doing here? Why is God allowing this to happen? And that's the question that I kind of want to think about today. When we go through those storms and we wonder why God is doing something, that's the kind of question I want to consider for us today. I don't think we'll get a full answer because God's ways are above our ways, but I think as we look at this passage, we can find some helpful things that will impact our life and helpful things that will help us frame how we view our storms and trials in life. So getting into the story, Jesus has just multiplied the bread and the fish, has a few loaves, a few fish, multiplies them, feeds 5,000 people. And then he said, it says in the text that he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. Now why would he use this language of making them go into the boat or at least urging them strongly to get in the boat? It could be because the disciples were kind of caught up into the crowd's frenzy. The crowd, as we looked at last week, was a crowd that they weren't there for a picnic. They were kind of a military crowd. They wanted to make Jesus into a king. It says in the book of John that they tried to make Jesus king by force. And so they're gathering together, probably screaming, probably calling out for Jesus to be king, calling out for them to overthrow the Romans. And so the disciples may have gotten kind of caught up in that frenzy of thinking that Jesus was going to help them overthrow the Romans. But Jesus sends them away, sends them in, a boat, in the boat ahead of him, and then he takes some time to be with the Lord. He goes up on the mountain to talk to God. In the meantime, we see that a great storm comes against the disciples. It says in the text that Jesus saw that, Jesus saw that they were making headway painfully, as it says in the translation in the ESV. Another way to translate it, this is that Something like this, that they were being tormented in their struggle. They were being tormented. It's a word that's a very extreme word that's used in very extreme cases of suffering, such as when someone was suffering from demon possession, uh, the pains of childbirth, uh, being in hell, uh, the suffering of a righteous person in the midst of the ungodly. So, in short, it's saying the disciples were in agony. They're being tossed to and fro. Their master isn't there. And they're thinking to themselves, this time Jesus is not going to be able to save us. This time we're lost. We're all out by ourselves. It's the middle of the night. We're all going to drown. So they're being tormented. They're in agony. And it says that Jesus saw them. We don't know exactly how Jesus saw them. We don't know that He was up on the mountain and could kind of see far in the distance and could see them struggling. That's a possibility. But also, he could have just had a kind of a knowledge because he was God's son that they were suffering. And so he begins to walk towards the disciples. It's about the fourth watch of the night, uh, between 3 to 6 a.m. And so he starts to walk towards the disciples. Then we see something 
in the text in this passage that I found very interesting and baffling at first when I looked at it. Look at what it says in the text. He came to them walking on the sea, and it says that He meant to pass them by. He meant to pass by them. Now, it appears like Jesus was trying to kind of go covert. He was just trying to walk past them so that they wouldn't see. But there's some questions that that raises if that's the case. Because if that's the case, I mean, why would Jesus walk right by the boat? The Sea of Galilee wasn't that small. It was a relatively small lake. But He could have easily walked around so they couldn't see. And besides, He's the Son of God. He could have snapped His fingers and just appeared on the other side of the lake. So if he actually wanted to not be seen by the disciples, it appears that he would have been able to do that. So why does it say that he meant to pass by them? Well, one possibility I think the most likely is this, that there's kind of an Old Testament precedence for this word or this phrase, pass by. For example, when Moses appears before the Lord, In Exodus 33, it says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I will make all my goodness pass before you. Then with Elijah in 1 Kings 19.11, we see uh, Elijah's told, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by them. And then we see one other passage that bears quite a few similarities to this passage. Even the language is quite similar from the book of Job. Job is describing God as being one high and lifted up, separated from mankind. And he says, "...who alone stretched out the heavens, speaking of God, and trampled the waves of the sea? Behold, He passes by me, and I see Him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive Him." So in the first two passages here, we see that when God passes by Moses and He passes by Elijah, He does it so that He might reveal Himself to them, not to hide Himself from them. But when God reveals Himself to Moses or to Elijah, He reveals Himself as one who is high and lifted up, who is so holy and righteous and powerful that even to see His face was to experience death. So as we look at this passage and then we look at the story and the the context in the Old Testament, I think there's some similarities and some dissimilarities between this passage and the Old Testament. So in this passage, Jesus does identify Himself as the God of the universe. The God who tramples the sea. Remember the last time that Jesus calmed the storm in Mark chapter 4? After they calmed the storm, the disciples still don't understand who he is even in this passage before this miracle they don't understand who he is they didn't understand about the bread and the loaves it says but after he calms the storm the first time they ask a question they say who then is this that the wind and the waves obey him and here jesus is answering that question he's answering that question and he says i'm the one who tramples the seas i'm the bread that satisfies I'm God with skin on, and I've come here so that you might know me. And so Jesus reveals himself and answers that question that the disciples had about who he was and declares himself to be God's son. So that, there's kind of a similarity how God reveals himself, but there's a difference between the way God reveals himself here in Jesus and the way he reveals himself in the Old Testament. 
In the Old Testament, for the most part, it's kind of a caricature, but for the most part, he's described as powerful, transcendent, mysterious, almost unapproachable. That it was, he was so holy that to enter into his presence, only the high priest could enter one time a year with a sacrifice. But in Jesus, the great God of the universe is seen, is touched, is known. That the great God of the universe is walking by the side of the boat. After they arrive at the shore, the people longed, it says, to even touch the hem of his garment. That to touch the hem of his garment meant that they would be healed. And so, the way that God reveals himself in this story in Jesus is not just one who is powerful and who is mighty, who is strong, but also one who is approachable, who can be seen, heard, and touched. But the disciples, they see Jesus, they're terrified. They think he's a ghost. And so they cry out with fear and look at what Jesus says to them. He says first, take heart. Take heart. And then he says, do not be afraid. Now in one sense, this in itself would be strange because to be in the presence of God was a terrifying thing. That someone in the presence of God in a sense should be terrified because God is so awesome and so powerful. Jesus says, take heart. Don't be afraid. And he says something else that's pretty profound. It can be taken or translated two different ways. And I think both of them may be accurate. In the one sense, it can be translated as it says in, this, in the ESV, take heart, it is I. In other words, take heart, I'm your master. I'm your Lord. I'm your friend. I'm the one who was, has been with you all this time. Take heart, I'm not a ghost. I'm not going to hurt you. Nothing is going to befall you. So he says, take heart, it is I. But there's another way that this can be translated. And I think the way that it transla- can be translated the second time can kind of a- is probably an echo back to the Exodus story. And the other way it can be translated is, take heart, I am. Take heart, I am. If you're familiar with the Exodus story, God is first described as I am uh, when He appears to Moses. Moses is talking to God, and God and, he, and Moses wonders how he should describe God to the Israelites. How, who should I say that you are? And God says to him, if I, or Moses first says, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And then God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So God refers to Himself as I Am. And we see a number of I Am statements in the book of John and some other places where Jesus refers to Himself as the I Am. And when God refers to Himself as I Am, He's probably referring to the fact that He's without compare. He says, I am who I am. There's no one who can rival me. There's no one who can be compared to me. When He says I Am, He probably encapsulates the essence that He's unchanging. I am, I always will be. I am in a class by myself, so to speak. So God reveals Himself to Moses as the great I am, and then He does a number of miraculous signs and wonders for the Israelites, providing for them in the wilderness, providing them food, providing them water. 
And so when Jesus says, take heart, I am, again, I think it's an echo back to this passage in Exodus that Jesus is saying, do not be afraid. I'm the one who was there in the beginning. I'm the God of the Exodus. I'm the God who provides. I'm the God who is beyond compare. I'm the God who never changes. I'm the God who performs incredible wonders, who tramples over the sea. And so Jesus establishes Himself as the great I Am, the God of the universe, one who is transcendent and mighty, but He's also the one who knows the people, who says to His people, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Take heart, I am your friend. I'm the God who knows you. So we started the message by kind of asking the question, uh, thinking about the situation when God doesn't answer us in ways that we think that He should, or maybe our, we go through kind of difficulties in life and we ask the question, why God? What are you doing in this circumstance? And when we are in that situation, I think this passage provides us with a framework for how to handle that. I think the answer to that question is that sometimes God not only calms our storms, but He also reveals Himself to be sufficient in the midst of our storms. He not only calms our storms, but He reveals Himself to be sufficient in the midst of our storms. See, in this passage, Jesus saw the disciples struggling, saw they were in agony, and He could have just snapped His fingers, calmed the sea, and that was it. He could have just spoke the word and it would have been done. But he doesn't do that. He chooses to walk out to them in the midst of their struggle. In the midst of their storm to reveal to them who he is. And he reveals to them that he is the great I am. Take heart. Do not be afraid. I'm enough for you. Maybe some of us are in a storm today. And maybe we need to be reminded that God is the great I Am. That God is there for us. And maybe Jesus is telling you today in the midst of your storm, I'm enough for you. Maybe He's telling you, I'm your sustainer. In the midst of difficulty, maybe He's telling you, I am your peace. I am your healer. In the midst of darkness, maybe He's saying, I am your hope. I am your helper. In the midst of facing sin and guilt, maybe He's saying to you, I am your Savior, your only way to the Father. I am your sacrifice. In the midst of dealing with depression and futility, maybe He's saying to you today, I am your future. And so God reveals to us, sometimes He reveals Himself the most strongly in the midst of our storms. And that's what He does for these disciples in this passage. It's not just about... Uh, calming the storms, but revealing Himself to be sufficient in the midst of the storms. Others of us, maybe we're in a storm today, and maybe God is reminding you, do not be afraid, it is I. When we face the storms in our lives, they can be really scary. Disciples felt like they had no one to help them. And then this person is headed towards them, think he's a ghost, and it seems like Jesus is coming on the scene and making things even worse. But Jesus says, take heart. It's I. I'm your friend. I know you. I care about you. And maybe some of us need that reminder where we're wondering, God, where are you? God, don't you care? Maybe we need to be reminded that he's with us in the trial. They're saying, take heart. 
Don't be afraid. It's me. I'm here. I'm with you. Great reformer Martin Luther is known for a lot of things. Uh, One of the most uh, famous things he's known for is, of course, the Reformation, but he was also a hymn writer, and one of the songs that uh, is most famous for is the song, A Mighty Fortress. And this song, A Mighty Fortress, uh, was written during one of the most difficult times in his life, the most difficult years in his life. In April, he had a dizzy spell that forced him to stop preaching in the middle of his sermon. And since he had kind of started the Reformation, he was continually in conflict with the authorities with the, of the Catholic Church. He had a number of death threats, and he was consistently facing opposition. And he was even facing opposition within his own party with uh, other reformers uh, over lesser issues such as how to view the Lord's Supper. And so Luther was deeply disturbed. He was angry, suffered severe depression. And so this is April when he has this dizzy spell. Then July, he had some friends over for dinner, and he wasn't feeling very well, so he went and laid down. And all of a sudden, he just screams out, water or I'll die. He felt so bad that he felt like he knew that the Lord was going to take him away, that he was done. He cried out in a loud prayer, surrendered himself to God's will. But he started to regain his strength, but depression and illness still he was still kind of fighting this depression and illness even in august september december looking back on one of his bouts of depression he wrote to his friend malachon after that he said i spent more than a week in death and hell my entire body in pain and i still tremble completely abandoned by christ i labored under the vacillations and storms of desperation and blasphemy against god But through the prayers of the saints, God began to have mercy on me and pulled my soul from the infernal below. So he's got all that stuff going on. In the meantime, the plague broke out in August where he was living in Wittenberg. And fear and panic began to spread. His wife was pregnant at the time. And even though she was pregnant, he decided that he needed to stay in his parish. And he opened his house home up uh, as a hospital. He worked tirelessly with his family to provide for uh, the sick. But unfortunately, uh, many of his friends ended up passing away. His son became ill. I think he ended up recovering. But he saw, saw many friends pass away. It wasn't until late November that the epidemic began to abate and the ill people began to recover from this illness. But it was during this year that Martin Luther began to remember the anniversary of when he had kind of started the Reformation. And he wrote something uh, like this. He said, The only comfort against raging Satan is that we have God's Word to save the souls of believers. Sometime that year, Luther expanded his thoughts on that. And he wrote the famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Some of the lyrics of a mighty fortress. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the floods of mortal ills prevailing. God not only calms our storms. Sometimes he will. Sometimes he'll work in our lives in a miraculous way. Sometimes we'll see his hand and his providence in our lives. But other times, 
he reveals himself to be sufficient in the midst of the storms. That he reveals that he is the great I am. That there's nothing in our lives that he can't handle. There's nothing in our lives that, he, that takes him by surprise. But he also reveals himself as the one who says, it is I. I know you. I'm your friend. I'm here for you. And I love you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for coming to the earth to die on the cross for our sins, paying our ultimate penalty. Uh, God, we just thank you that you're there for us in the midst of the storms of life. We, God, we thank you that you're enough for us, that you are the great I am, that nothing catches you by surprise, that you're powerful, that you're mighty, but also that you know us and care about us, that you're our friends if we're believers in you. There's nothing that can... Keep us from your love. That you said in your word that you work all things together for the good of those who love you, who have been called according to your purpose. God, I pray for those who are in the midst of a storm today. God, I just pray that those in the midst of a storm would be assured of your power, assured of your grace, and most importantly, assured that you're with them. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.